Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I sat down with Harlan Peace. He's an exceptional man and a friend of mine, and he does all sorts of very cool things. He's a musician on call. Um, What that means is, as a musician, he goes in and plays for people, uh, patients in the hospital and in hospice. Uh, He was also a songwriter, uh, which is how we met initially. And he's a teacher of literature and composition. Not only does he teach locally at the community college, National State Community College, but he also teaches in the prison system here in Tennessee. Um, Here in the state of Tennessee, they have a program that was implemented uh, not too long ago. Uh, It's only a few years old, uh, if that. And basically what it does is uh, it provides college courses to inmates so that they can get uh, their college degrees and get some education, which is fantastic. And so Harlan is a part of that. He was one of the first, in fact, that uh, was able to teach in the newly implemented programs. So it's very cool. We talk about all that stuff. So I looked up some statistics about prison education reducing recidivism or reoffending. What are the the rates of people who get an education in prison and the chances of of committing crimes again and ending up back in prison? In other words, so why do I'm reading off of uh, from prisoneducation.com? Why do seventy to eighty five percent of prisoners return to prison? Lack of education, lack of skills. Those are the two top reasons. Um, so this is the recidivism rate with education levels. People with some high school courses, 55% recidivism, meaning when they return to prison. Uh, vocational training, 30% recidivism. An associate's degree, it drops down to 13.7% of the chances of them returning to prison. A bachelor's degree, that drops again to 5.6% chance of them returning to prison. And if they get a master's degree, that drops to zero. That is astounding. If that isn't a good reason to educate people that are in the prison system, I mean, sheesh, I don't know what is. Um, This is the 55th episode. I can't believe it. 55 episodes. And coming up... July is July last year is when I started doing Hey Human, and it has been incredible. I've I've enjoyed every second of it, and I'm excited for what's coming. Uh, and in honor of the year anniversary of Hey Human, my friend Ellen Severe actually came over earlier today, and she interviewed me. So this week will be Harlan's episode, and then episode 56 will be uh, the episode that I am being interviewed, <laughs> which is fun. Um, it's been great, and I'm so appreciative to all of you who have listened and who have written reviews and have reached out to me. I get the loveliest texts and emails, and it's just it makes, it makes me happy to know that it makes you all happy, um, and that all the, everybody's, everybody's stories are getting out there, and it's just super cool. Um, as I just found out this week that basically if you have an Android or an iOS phone, so Apple product or an Android product, you can get Hey Human on an app for either phone. So that means, I did a, a quick Google search on 
all, a bunch of different podcast apps and Hey Human came up in all of them. So that's really exciting. Um, so now I don't have to ramble off all the different uh, various podcast apps. Y'all can probably just pull up whatever you've got or download a particular app off of the app store on your phone and, and get that going on. Um, anyway, as usual, if you would, if you haven't already, please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Um, reviewing is great. Um, I think that people, when they see what other people think, you know, they're more apt to, to, to check it out if they've never heard of it before. Like anything else, when you review a product or whatever, you know, you're, if somebody likes it, then you're more likely to buy it yourself. So in the world of listening to podcasts, if other people like the podcast and say so, I think it, it ups the chance that new new ears will dive in. Um, as also, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter under Hey Human Podcast. You can email me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com. And I think that's that's all the that's all the stuff. So Without further ado, here is Harlan Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hello, Harlan Peace. Good morning, Susan. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for being on Hey Human. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, you are a very interesting man. Uh, I'm going to read your things here. So okay. You teach at National State Community College. Mm-hmm. You teach at Charles Bass. That's a correctional facility? That's a correctional facility. It's no longer, uh, no longer open, around. but I did used to. To teach there, yeah. Turney Correctional Center yep. as well. You're also a musician on call. That's for correct. For musicians on call. Uh-huh. And you're a songwriter. That's correct. songwriter. So um, let's, let's start at the thing that interests me most because it's all about me. <laughs> what interests me as the it most should be. is the uh, teaching in the correctional facility. Talk uh-huh. about that. And what's your background as far as education? I uh, do. You what, mean teaching your or, degree? Or? I have a, a master's in literature from Northeastern University, and I have a graduate concentration in communications from Austin P. Okay. So Austin? Like Austin P. up in Clarksville. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not in Austin. Not in Austin, no. It's tricky. Um, it's very tricky. <laughs> I, uh, sorry, I keep looking at the meter over here. I want to make sure I'm not peeking it. My bad. I'll oh, come no. back to it. That's a very musician uh, thing of you. <laughs> so I've start, I taught my first course at Charles Bass, which was a minimum security prison. And it has since been closed, and it they've moved uh, that population to an annex of Turney Correctional Center out in Only, Tennessee. Why did they close it down? I'm sure it was just financially mm. based. Um, yeah. Some of the, the privatization of prisons has changed the number of, um, what do they call it, T? It doesn't matter what the abbreviation is, but I think just financially they couldn't justify having that population and of minimum security only. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they changed the, the designation. Turney was a medium to max security facility. Mm-hmm. And they changed the, the designation to time building, which means they put people... Time? T-I-M-E? Time building, yes. Uh-huh. So for people who are just basically working off their sentence uh-huh. and they're not a behavioral problem for the most part, they're uh-huh. going to end up in that population. Um so I guess that was kind of the justification. They sort of saw like the delineation between minimum and medium didn't need to be quite so like we didn't have didn't have these people sixty miles apart. I guess. Oh, so, are they in the population together? The minimum and the mediums. Minimum, minimum live in a an, an what they call an annex. 
but they come together for meals, work. Oh. So in that way... That must be terrifying. If I've done something minimum and that justifies minimum security and I have to break bread with the max people, I wonder if that's freaky. I mean, I think... I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I, I can only imagine what those people go through. Um, but the people who are, if you are like hardcore Max, you're in Riverbend. Oh, in a different place altogether. And Riverbend is still, it's near Charles Bass and that's still in operation and that's... The hardcore. That's the hardcore place. Okay. Um, it sounds lovely, Riverbend. <laughs> Riverbend, yes. I Country love irony. <laughs> irony. A, a gated community. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, anyway... Uh, <laughs> Horrifying. So, okay, in Tennessee, it didn't used to be, I'm going to rhyme this, in Tennessee, it didn't used to be that people like you and me could go in. I'm just going to keep yeah. going with the rhyme. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you got another tip. So, they, there used to not be the educational system within the prisons. That's, that, that's something that happened recently. So, talk about that, okay. the pre and post. Uh, just to give a little background, what is unique about what I've been, the program I've been involved in is it's offering college credit. Uh, inmates have been able to earn their GED at Turney for a long time. They actually have a, a school there. Mm. Uh, so they've had that option. But um, Julie Duchin was, she went to Lipscomb for her, I believe her educational doctorate. And part of what her interest was, was educating the incarcerated population. So a, a, she had to do a tremendous amount of work uh, that really goes unappreciated as to how much she had to overcome. Nashville State, which is where I work, was the only college she could find willing to accredit, uh, offer accredited courses. So she approached some other places and they weren't willing to put their name on, yes, this is legitimate college credit. Oh, wow. Even though the teachers were the same. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Were they afraid of giving prisoners education? I, I, I can't speak to that. I can say that when Julie did this and announced it, there was a considerable backlash from the community about giving prisoners education. Isn't that so... I See, I, I'm probably going to cut you off like a no, thousand times. I find that so fascinating because it's been proven time and again that education gets people out of situations Absolutely. where they would be more likely to commit crime. So it would seem like a no-brainer to go in and educate the prisoners so that their likelihood of reoffending would drop. Absolutely. I mean, teach them to read and write, which mm -hmm. some of these some of these folks don't even know how to read. Mm -hmm. How first of all, what a lonely world that would be. I can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so I'm just no, I'm shocked that people would have a backlash on something like educating another human being. But you know, it's a I, I will say that I think even some of the guards have been a bit, I'll just use the word standoffish, that's probably a little mild, about the idea of the prisoners getting a free education. Oh, um, interesting too. I'm going to say interesting a lot as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. I find this stuff uh, fascinating. Um, oh, wow. So here's, you know, Joe Smith, the guard, who didn't go to college perhaps and is pissed because these inmates are getting a free ride to, mm -hmm. to learn. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting, interesting. So, Still, you know what? Let the guards do it, too. Yeah. Why not? Well, and that was, that was absolutely my... 
I said, you know what? If there's going to be a guard in the room, I don't care. I'll teach one more person. Sure. What's the? Did they have a problem with that? Uh, My God, they're working just, for like twelve bucks an hour, and they right. should be able to take free classes. Well, and as state employees, I'm assuming their deal is the same. They can take a class for free every semester, like up to three classes a year really? for free. I didn't know that. That's how I did my graduate stuff at Austin P. Really? Because as a state employee, uh, well, I don't know. That That's might be specific program. to TBR. But or it Tennessee. Absolutely was. Uh, is that what TBR yeah. is? Yeah. Uh, well, Tennessee is, uh, TBR is Tennessee Board of Regents. Ah, uh, okay. And we fall under that umbrella. Okay. But I believe it. I actually have a student in class this summer. Uh, he's, he's an architect, and he's in his 60s, and he said... This is at the regular college. Yeah, this is at... Yeah, sorry. That's um, okay. I was like, right yeah, on, yeah. man. <laughs> Prisoners give me an architect um, when he gets out. I love that. He said... We were talking one day after class, and he said, if you are over 60 in the state of Tennessee, you can audit a class for free. Wow. Which at is a state, really At cool. a state school. At a state school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can sure. go in and audit them. You don't earn credit, but... Um, so he's in there, and he's a pretty laid-back guy. He's... Uh, I'm getting off topic. No, but, it's okay. This um, is great. He's uh, he's competed in a number of um, triathlons, uh-huh. and if you looked at him, you would not think this is a triathlon person. But mm-hmm. he said uh, he uh, looking at a family photograph and saw like how much weight he had put on, and you know, coming from a family of people who are athletic, he was like, "This is my wake up call." And uh, so he, you know, he just he said, after you jump off the, uh, I guess it was the San Francisco Bay Bridge into the water. To swim, he said, "You're really not scared of a whole lot anymore." Wow, <laughs> it's pretty cool. But yeah. anyway, to get back to the prison thing, so Julie had done this groundwork, and um, she started at Charles Bass. They mm-hmm. were they were willing to have us in. Uh, the president of our school supported the program, and uh, and who is the president of your school? That's a uh, shout George out. Van Allen. George Van Allen, Doctor Van Allen. Good for uh, George Van Allen. And he uh, so he supported that and. Uh, my dean asked me if I would teach the course, and I said I would. Um, and I went, and it was a. I would. I've been reticent to use a word this much of a word, but I, or expression, but it was life changing. Um, because my knowledge of people in a prison population was pretty limited, and my knowledge of their life. And we, we've all seen Shawshank Redemption, and there's a degree of accuracy in that, but mm-hmm. it's not the whole. And it's also set at a time. different time different time and I just met some wonderful people we know a few in common yes you've had someone I've had them both on the podcast Adam Shelby and uh, David Nunn David Nunn yeah and they were in that first first group of they were together in the first yeah I only taught one course at Charles Bass oh okay before it and before it closed and then I went out to Turney okay so here you are you're you know teaching in regular college and now you have this opportunity to go in and teach prisoners, mm-hmm. and this is minimum and medium prisoners. The, the first the class was just me, minimum. Just minimum. Just okay. minimum. Yeah. Um, what is a minimum? What does that mean? Like not rape or anything, but or is that sometimes or what is that? Does minimum not have to do with the time limit? I think it has has to do with where they are in their sentence. Okay. Uh, not the not the level of crime they've committed. I or, know that. In that class, there was someone who was convicted of vehicular manslaughter, two people. He had a 14-year sentence. Okay. And there was another person I know that killed someone, and I think they 
I'm not sure the designations, but it wasn't a premeditated murder. So manslaughter. I mean, is it that manslaughter? Yeah. Manslaughter means it's not premeditated. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so, and then of course David was in there, and David has a colorful past, and yes. we know he was. He does. He was definitely in the medium. It's security. a great episode, by the way, for those of you listening. Shout I, out. <laughs> I highly recommend going back and listening to David Nunn's episode. It's good. Uh, okay, so, so you're so here you are getting ready for the first day, and talk about that. I mean, <laughs> you know, curly-haired white guy going in classes. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, my hair was shorter then; it wasn't full-on curly then, but. Uh, I'm just yeah. describing you so they'll, they can see a picture if they want to, but yeah. for the listeners, so you're like a regular guy, you know? Yeah. Well, I didn't, I mean, I'm not going to say my heart wasn't beating faster, but I've, I've taught for a while now, and I used to teach high school, and one thing you learn as a teacher is you have to go and you have to put your game face on the first day. High school terrifying, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> That might have been worse. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, in some There's ways no it was. <laughs> no guards in the high school. But you learn, like, you have to go in, you have to put your game face on, and you have to set boundaries from the beginning. Sure. So I walked in, and the most uncomfortable part was, normally in a classroom, I will walk in, like, one minute before or right at 8 o'clock at the start time. I'm not somebody who comes in and socializes with my students for 10 minutes. Uh, so... The uncomfortable part was walking in and there being this time to kill because you can't really orchestrate that. You have to go through and go through the security and get scanned and all that and get walked, escorted back to the to the classroom. So there I'm sitting there and it's obviously this really awkward, like, well, I'm clearly the person teaching the class and here are the inmates. And everyone's kind of just like looking at each other and not saying a word. Because this program had never been done. This, this is, is the literally the very first. Very first class. Okay. Um, really, it was the very first class of its kind in the state of Tennessee. So, which is, I'm just putting a shout out. That's more on Julie and how much work she did to get this together. But, but once, uh, I started, you know, I handed out the syllabus, we started talking, um, probably the first hour was a little tense and cracked a couple of jokes. They opened up a little bit. I talked about what was going to happen this semester. They were extremely respectful, uh, extremely interested like in terms of having an interested class the prison population they're there and they are there to to learn um although david talked about how when we talked to him he, he said you know at first it was just a way to get across campus and get out of doing something else but nonetheless it developed into something where i mean i've had classes at tourney where i'll go out and i don't even get myself unpacked before they're asking a question about the reading yeah. and then next thing I know it's like hey we got to go guys I mean they just it gives in a big I guess the takeaway for me is a reminder of just how juicy and valuable learning is I guess that wasn't a good metaphor. I think it's great. David had mentioned that it gave him something to have. He finally felt self-respect. He had a goal. He had something to live for. He, you know, he started thinking, oh, maybe I'm not a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And, you know, just that little tiny Mm -hmm. change in one's self-assessment. Absolutely. Can do wonders. That is so much more valuable than the college credit. Although, I mean, there's something to be said for that, but 
mean, I'm coming at it from a liberal arts background, and I b- believe in the value of education for education's sake. And I, hippie. I know. <laughs> damn hippie. Um, <laughs> so last fall, I'm kind of skipping around. That's not even an bit. insult anymore. Like, you can't <laughs> right? call me hippie like nobody cares. You have to so, call them li- yeah. liberal yeah. nowadays. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. But, uh, That's something, an offshoot of that, which I've been called that a few times. Anyway. Um uh, yeah, I don't take it as a bad way, uh, in a bad way. Uh, Doesn't insult me at all. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so last fall at Belmont, uh, excuse me, I said that. Should have, last fall, Belmont hosted a national conference for education, higher education in prisons. Mm-hmm. So I presented there and talked about my experiences. And um, I mean, I had more of a presentation that I talked about our responsibility as educators to give the students the exact same experience we would give all of our students that we can't cut slack or, or cut them slack or grade them differently because in from what I've seen, I think the downside of, I guess, that liberal arts mentality or outlook, that mentality is the wrong word, um, is you get people in there who may be a little too bleeding hard about the whole thing and everything's like, oh, they're victims in there. Oh, and no, you can't to, do that. Yeah. It, I don't think, from my experience, um, the the inmates themselves don't want to, there are some who want to have a victim mentality, but the ones who are improving themselves realize that they have to work on themselves. Sure. To give you a, to, an, an example, at that Belmont... Well, and they have to try to get into that class. They don't just oh, yeah. get, they don't just get to get in. David and and uh, Adam both said that you have to take a placement test. You have to take a placement test, have a job, yeah. pay a certain. Oh, absolutely, yeah. it's not a gimme. And after your your first class in that first semester, or was it semester mm-hmm. quarters? After the first semester, other inmates that were like, "Wait, what's what's going on?" Seeing the seeing it reflected back at them from mm-hmm. the students. Mm-hmm. They want to, and some of them couldn't even read. And Adam and David talked about how they tutored mm-hmm. other prisoners to help them get into the. I mean, how beautiful is it, it, that? It's it's like a it's like an addict in recovery that can reach out to another addict. And you know, they say that's the most powerful thing for yeah. people in recovery it's is the to mirror. yeah, to, and to to share that. So. Uh, I'm going to go back to that conference just for a second and yeah. share a couple of things that happened. Sure. Uh, the first thing that happened was the warden, uh, I'm not sure of his title, but I believe he is the head warden for the prison system in Tennessee. He got up and spoke, and he used the word convict. And, and there were like people who were like taking umbrage to this use of the word convict. But the inmates refer to themselves. I'm like, they call each other convict. They're comfortable with that. It's this other... You know, it's like the pendulum has swung too far. We can't call them convicts. Let's call them students. Well, they are students, but first and foremost... They're convicts. That's that's the bulk of their day. They've been convicted. It's a yeah. proper reference. I mean... So that uh, that's a mentality that... I mean, that, that's the opposite end of the pendulum from the people who think like, no, they should just be doing hard labor every day and be given bread and water. Mm. Um, so when I did my presentation, one thing I talked about was our responsibility... And maintaining discipline in the classroom is very important because that's they need to understand that that's how it works. I mean, that's that's the system. And a couple of people were offended by that. And one person said, well, don't you think you're coming from a space of privilege? And I'm like, of, of course I'm coming from a space of privilege. I'm not incarcerated. 
I grew up with two parents who loved and cared for me, and you, of course, that I'm telling you how to read and write. And, it, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean that you can't break down all the structures of society to accommodate someone, because that's what got some of these people in there in the first place. Is growing up in an unstructured world where they didn't think the rules mattered. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very interesting thing. Uh, I, I'm I'm passionate about it. I'm going back out to teach attorney this fall. I'm going to teach a communications class. Um, we're not going to change the world, but we can change microcosms and one one piece at a time. You know, for the people who get it, the David Nuns, the Adam Shelby, who come out of that and they see that. It's interesting you use the expression a piece of shit because <laughs> I, that's what, what made me think about the addicts and the reaching out is so many of them feel like they don't have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Or worth. Or Exactly. Yeah. And part of what gives them that helps them overcome this is seeing like, if I can help one other person. And it, it makes all the difference. And, yeah. I mean, Adam Shelby's a bright guy. He's very bright. He's a very bright guy. Um, and... Opening that door for him. I mean, I think about all the things I've done with education, and the and, and a lot of it is run of the mill, everyday. You know, students don't make much of an impression on you, and you don't make much of an impression on them. Mm-hmm. But then there's the ones that stand out, and like mm-hmm. some of the high schoolers I taught who still keep in touch. You know, it's ten years ago now. You know, more that they graduated. Um, it's anyway. So that. A shout out to Julie Duchin and Dr. Van Allen for, you know, taking that chance and doing this. And now the program out in Turney, they have a full-time administrator who works out there for just this program. And I believe there are like 120, 130 students in the program. Mm. So they have, I think, four, maybe five cohorts that are going through. So So now that you're in Turney, which is uh, medium security. Right. It, but not max, right? Just me. Not max. Not max. Yeah. Right. So, but so that's the next level up of offenders, oh, and that probably includes violence and all that kind oh, of thing. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about the first day of work there. <laughs> um, Going into a minimum situation versus a medium situation. Look, fortunately, I already had my sea legs, so to speak, because I'd gone through a course before, so I understood what was going to happen with the guards. I understood the attitudes that I might encounter and some of that. Did any of the guards give you a hard time? Like you were some sort of a scab, you know, breaking the ranks um, of, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, uh, I wouldn't say they gave me a hard time. The attitude attorney, uh, and, and let me just preface this because I don't want to sound like I'm being critical of the institution. The That's a huge risk for them. And which this, which is you know to bring someone in you're bringing a civilian, in a civilian yeah and, oh of course and it's an extra responsibility for them uh, and for the people who've worked there for a long time they are just as institutionalized as the as the inmates so their mindset and and they um, let's just be honest I mean they deal with stuff on a daily basis I mean they go to work I don't guess they have many relaxing moments in that job yeah and they see a side of it that I'm not seeing. I'm coming in for three hours and I have a very attentive group of students and it'd be very easy to think, oh, look, they're all wonderful human beings. I'm sure they, they see humanity at its worst as exactly. well. Sure. So they're, so I, I just want to say all that because I don't want to sound like I'm biased one way or the other. I try to be objective. But I came in and um, 
that class was uh, was unique, and I don't want to give any information away that might you know reveal someone's identity, but it was very clear from the tattoos and the markings that you're dealing with a whole different level of stuff going on there mm. than what you're seeing in a minimum security. Mm-hmm. This is more gang members and this is perhaps murderer elements and things absolutely. like that. Yeah, absolutely, and it's got to be a little surreal from your perspective. Well, you know. It, the mistake I made was using the internet to Google. And Some of your it, students? Yeah. Oh. Because they were, they, I mean, they their writing was wonderful and the politeness, and I'm kind of thinking, like, what did they do to get here? And because, I mean, some students make an impression on you, like, these are, like, I mean, intelligent people. But it's not Adam Shelby at a minimum security. I mean, you could see Adam. I mean, he's a bright guy, but I could also see him making a mistake. Sure. He's human. But these guys, you're like, they've been in there for 20 years. What did they do? Right. And then you Google it, and there's so much information available, and you can read appeals, and you're like, oh, God, I can't make eye contact with this person again. (laughs) (laughs) So surreal is a good word for it. because. uh, But that first class I had out there was, again, like a life changer. It Because in some ways it was more emotionally impactful because... There were some of the people in the minimum security where I would feel like, I mean, they're by the grace of God, go high, you know, I mean, one wrong turn, one different decision in a situation, and I mean... One set of different parents. One one number missing off a bank account. I mean, there's so many different variables that... It just... Completely changed the course a person walks down. And even to think the things that I did, you know, when I was younger, that... I think it's so easy when we're young, we do something that's a little bit of breaking the law and we don't, and we, we feel entitled to that, but that's particularly when we're young, we don't fully appreciate why laws exist. And when we're older, we might argue against them because we find them to be immoral. But when we're younger, we rebel against laws because, and I'm saying this like we, but I think this is to be generally true. We rebel against laws because we find them to impinge upon the, our happiness. I want I to really drive want fast. I really want that Tootsie Roll. I yeah. want to drive fast. <laughs> and that, exactly. Like the six-year-old stealing the piece of candy. Exactly. Or, yeah. The, I saw a comedian the other day talking about uh, drunk driving. And he's and he said, basically, you know, there's the people that get arrested for drunk driving. And then there's all the pe- other people who have definitely should mm-hmm. not have been driving that have never been mm-hmm. caught. You know, and... Yeah. I read a statistic, and I have no idea how they would come up with this, but that said that the average male drives under the influence 84 times before they get arrested. Dang. And I don't know how they would calculate that. I'm sure they did surveys and so forth. But So like to go back to the vehicular manslaughter, killed a couple people drunk driving, and you think, like, well, I think, like, man, when I was younger, I, I could have been me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the statute of limitations is up. I can confess that I'm old enough now. But uh, so, but you see how like what if this decision had turned out differently, and then led to this decision, and then so thinking back to someone I knew in college, um, I won't mention his name. I still he's in Florida now, and he's a lawyer. Uh, but he got arrested for uh, distribution of of drugs. Um, he came back from spring break with some marijuana and cocaine, and he had talked about it so openly that and they were just waiting for him and <laughs> kicked him out of school. But there's a guy whose father's a doctor, 
and so that doesn't change his life. The the guy that was caught for the yeah. drugs, his parents his were wealthy. So I'm guessing white, probably. Yep. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. So he goes back to Florida and gets his life together and becomes an attorney. And But for someone else, that leads to a jail term, which leads to another crime, which leads to... And there's that thing, like, yeah. there by the grace of God or whichever sure. you... And it you is also about choices. It's not like the universe thrusts... Everybody has sure. a choice. It's not to say that somebody born into poverty... And, I mean, this is the argument. The people who are born into poverty are so much more likely to commit a crime. They, mm-hmm. Like you said, they don't have maybe the role models. They're not getting the education. They're mm-hmm. throwaway, quote-unquote, people, <clears throat> unfortunately. Excuse me, unfortunately. But there's also people that are in that situation that rise up from that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's. but not all of us are able to do that. Right. And there's a heck of a lot of judgment on well i'm a self-starter so i you know so they should just pick themselves up by their their bootstraps mm-hmm. it's not that freaking simple it as we said earlier the truth is usually somewhere in the middle the truth is somewhere in the middle and i firmly believe in free will and i firmly believe in you know we have a responsibility to be the best people that we can be and i don't take kindly to people who make excuses and i guess the to go back to the prison thing, like one thing I saw quickly, and this goes all the way back to Charles Bass, was the mentality of I'm a victim versus I did something wrong and I'm going to improve my life. And you can see it in their whole demeanor, their yeah. outlook, the way they write, the way they respond in class. There were people who were definitely like taking advantage of the situation. They're sitting in the back, they're passing stuff back and forth. And I'm like, this is... Do they get kicked out? What happens to them? All I did in that situation, because this this is a complicated answer that's really not that interesting. All I said was, I would like to have a guard come in the room and just randomly. I don't want them to know he's coming at a certain time. Just pop your head in and you can hang as long as you want. And that just solved that problem because I did not want to get into a... Yeah. Now at Turney, my understanding is, my last semester they taught there, there was a student council of sort of... that was taking responsibility for classroom issues. Mm. And it, That's kind of neat that they would have... Yeah. yeah. Well... A jury of your peers. <laughs> as you, <laughs> well, to, and to give them some autonomy in that situation <laughs> um, and not have it be in my hands. Uh, because, like, I had a, a, a one inmate that was behaving what I consider to be inappropriately. And uh, behaving inappropriately. I made sure I said that right. Uh, and... I brought it up, and this guy confronted me about it, and it was probably the scariest moment I've ever had in this situation because there's a long walk from the classroom until you get back inside the compound and you're through the gates and so forth. So I was walking back alone. It was dark. It was because it's a night class. And this guy came up, and he started going off. And um, I mean, I was out there in the middle of the prison yard with an inmate, and there were no correctional officers around and I was kind of like it was the scariest moment I've had there for sure and I wasn't necessarily scared of the person in front of me but I was scared of the fact that I was completely exposed in the yard And uh, but long story short uh, another inmate the next week came up and said something to the effect of we can take care of this in a way that so they knew that that guy was harassing you yeah that word got out um, it Again, without going into all the details, 
Well, now I'm interested. Yeah. They, well, they really, there are. I really don't know any details in them. Uh, but somehow, somehow they the word got around. Word got around campus, so to speak. So that guy probably talked some smack about you, and then he said something to the effect of he was going to yeah. give you some business. Well, who knows? But the other guy said they could take care of it, and I was like, "Well, you know, we just have to let this be what it's going to be." Um, because I don't, well, I didn't want to think about how they're going to take care of it, you know. Yeah. So, long story short, they have a student council, and this goes back to that original idea we started talking about, which is uh, teaching the, what I feel to be the responsibility of teaching. This is why I presented on what I presented at Belmont, because I feel like if we as educators go out there and we treat them differently and accept behavior that we wouldn't accept in a, in a classroom. I mean, everybody's different, but I don't allow my students to just have random conversations by themselves in class and use their cell phones. I mean, you're either paying attention or you're not going to be in my classroom. Um, within reason, I mean, I'm dealing with adults and teaching at college, but generally speaking, you're not allowed to impinge on someone else's right to have an education. So what I presented on at Belmont was this idea that we have to go in there and maintain... We're not just teaching the subject matter, we're also teaching a certain population of people how to be successful in an environment that's not that many of them have grown up in. And there's a different set of rules. I and mean, if you've been incarcerated since you're fifteen years old, you've been out of juvie, then you go to prison, you know, you're gonna have a difficult time adjusting socially. So um that's it's really wasn't that interesting. No, it's incredibly interesting. Um, but I'll be the judge of that. Okay. <laughs> you wouldn't be here if I didn't think it was interesting, mister. But uh yeah, I mean, I I did some research on on systems theory and cybernetics in terms of communication and presented and like I said a, f- a few people were offended by it. And uh, let me go back to uh, that. People Just, at the at the conference at the conference were offended by you saying treat them like you would treat anyone. Treat them, yes. Maintain standard. That's what the guy said. Uh, like, okay. yeah. yeah, the whole uh, aren't you coming from a uh, what do you call privileged? It? Yeah, place space of privilege. Yeah. Um, but and I will say that there's a lot going on with education in prison that is not about college credits. And I mean, some of the presentations I went to, and maybe this is just my old school traditionalism coming out, but I'm like, you, you've got to be kidding me. You're doing this in a college classroom. I mean, what is this? Well, like, so for example, one I went to, um, it was the, uh, you know, I'm not going to give any details, but First, we got up, got up and stood in a circle and held hands and did some like chanting and singing. This is and, the person talking about it. Or yeah, this, this is what he does in his. This is what he does. In right, so he was replicating the experience. Now for that's us. a hippie. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's a hippie. So they were holding hands and chanting. And, and well, at least chanting their ABCs. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I was like just kind of like I'll get in like relaxed and I mean it was just I get meditation absolutely and that makes uh, sense it's but college that's a, class yeah I was going to say but that's that has its own place meditation can be a meditation right. class if education should be an education class we have approximately 42 contact hours with our students I don't think we have time I don't know what you're teaching but I can't get it all done in 42 hours without taking 10 minutes out of each class to meditate and hold hands so. yeah but that's the thing I'm like and that's my experience, obviously. This person's teaching at a not an Ivy League institution, but a higher level institution, and maybe a different had, student population. Had they taught um, 
Oh, wait a minute. So they, those, that person wasn't even teaching in prisons? No, this was what he was doing in prison. But oh, my point is, I see what you're saying. I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. his student population yeah. is different. But, yeah, sure. But I was just... The overall impression I took away from every session I did... I presented on Sunday morning. So I've been there for Friday and Saturday and attended a bunch of sessions. And I was like, this isn't real. I mean, I don't know what all your experience... But everything I I heard was just like, essentially, we're dumbing this down. These poor, you know, underprivileged people, and like that's not my experience at all. These are intelligent, yeah. s- capable. David and, was highly intelligent. He's, yeah. he's like a philosopher. It, and if you go in and, I mean, I would feel disrespected if someone taught me that way, and yeah. I feel like these men would also feel the same way. Like sure. They don't need to be pandered to. Precisely. Yeah. So it, I went home Saturday night and rewrite my whole presentation. I was up to like three in the morning and then I was back to present it the next Pilot day. on fire. <laughs> I like it. Man well, on fire. It, it actually worked out well because I was in no mood to be like, so when they started with the whole space of privilege, I wasn't even trying to be like, well, I see your point. I was just like, well, yeah. of course I'm coming from a space of yeah. privilege. I was just, I'm going to shut this down. Yeah. But. Good it, for you. Long story short. Um, or longer, perhaps. Uh, it has been eye-opening. It's given me, on a selfish, personal level, an appreciation for for freedom. Like, I'm going to go, when we leave here, when I leave here, I'm going to go get in the, my car and go 70 miles an hour down the internet. Inter- internet. Down the internet. <laughs> <laughs> also a freedom that they yeah. don't get in jail. Um, I'll have my sunroof open, you know, and I'm going to go home in my own home and play my guitars and all the stuff that you just take for granted and it's so easy in our culture to buy into like well I should have more or these people have more and realize wow like you know we all forget but like just on a daily basis that whole thing of gratitude and like I I have been blessed with so much in my life that I did not ask for that I you know circumstance Partly genetics, yeah. Partly the way my parents raised me. They sure. worked. They taught me a work ethic, and they worked really hard to teach good values. But I never went without. I never saw my parents abusing drugs. You, you know what I mean? Or just you. Or, or exactly. Or I mean, each just, other. It's such a different world. And I, I have a question. Yeah. So statistically speaking, the students that go through your classes and classes like this, um, what is their reoffending? Uh, statistic once they're out I don't know I don't have that information I mean I, we know because David and, and Adam are clearly you know, all, active yeah. members of society in a healthy way and are contributing and, and all that so there's two <laughs> um, every I have not heard of anyone going back and I have some Facebook connections and I think that would show up if it yeah sure um, at the Belmont conference there were four former inmates who had completed the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and every so often I'll hear this person graduated, this person finished or whatever. Uh, I know one person got out attorney. Uh, this is just an amazing story. I hope he's still doing okay. He came by my office. Um, he was wearing clothes that were clearly too large for him. And he was talking about what his life is like on the outside. And it's harder. Yeah. He's working two jobs. He has to go to Narcotics Anonymous a certain number of times a week. Um, some guy at his church just gave him a bag of hand-me-down clothes, which he was wearing. And he said, all I know how to do 
is have someone drop by with a bag of drugs and then I get on the phone and sell them. And, uh, I mean, bless his heart. He, he, uh, he's doing it day by day and he's coming out into, we talking about the pressure of our cult, of our society and we have this age thing. So here you are, you're coming out of incarceration and you're of a certain age and, and you have you're a felony. An, and you're Which an entry level job. Which they ask that on your, on yeah. your job thing. So yeah. how are you supposed to, you, driver's license? Yeah. Nope, sorry. Absolutely. Everything is... Everything's taken away from you. And then you're expected to reintegrate into mm-hmm. society. Talk about a giant Which, issue of, of assimilation. It's, I want to give... If, I don't know where we're doing on time. Hey, we've fine. been rambling we're for fine. a while. but no, ramble um, on, brother. To give a shout out to a former professor of mine, Dr. Robert Waxler, who I understand has been sick. I mean, he lives up in Rhode Island, and uh, we kind of lost touch, obviously. But uh, the point being, Dr. Waxler started a program up there uh, changing lives through literature. And he had a friend who was a judge, and they put this program together where first-time offenders who were facing a jail term for certain offenses, not all offenses, were given the choice of taking a literature course or doing their time. And uh, it's been very successful. Does anybody ever decide to take the time? Yeah, some people do. Interesting. Some people do. Uh, And there's a pre-selection going on. The people who are more inclined to take the class are are probably less likely to re-offend in the first place. But nonetheless, it's keeping people out of... Out of jail. Yeah. It's obviously saving the taxpayers a bunch of money. Sure. And, which speaks to your point earlier, excuse me, of, you know, why would you deny someone educa- an education? From a financial perspective, the cost of keeping someone incarcerated, even if only one out of ten, we've still gone, it's still cheaper to educate those ten and have one success than to leave that one incarcerated for 20 years. Absolutely. So Absolutely. It just makes good money sense. If, if you can't, if, it, if there's no other convincing argument, the balance sheet ought to be a convincing argument. Mm-hmm. But it... Uh, so the, the, the program is still going strong. Yes. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I have a, one last... I'm a, a, a colleague of mine. He's a philosophy teacher. And... He was offered to teach a class out there and they were having difficulty building a schedule for him because of supply and demand. So it was kind of in a situation where, well, you can either take this course or you can go drive somewhere else and teach this course. So he came and talked to him. He's, uh, I don't know how to describe him. I mean, he's a philosophy teacher, so he definitely has that bent. But he was not very on board with the idea of going out there and teaching. So I talked to him and I explained, like, no, this is the best class you're ever going to teach, the best class you're ever going to teach. And he was clearly skeptical. Funny for a philosophy guy. I was going to say, as a philosopher, he's probably more of a skeptic than... Funny. (laughs) But uh, he came back after, like, three weeks and stopped by my office and said, you know, this is the best class. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. But it's true. They worked so hard. They do their reading. They talk about it amongst themselves. In terms of an educational environment, it's, it's like bohemia. I mean, think about it. you're in a, they're, they don't have a lot of distractions. It's not like they're going out on dates or, you know what I mean? That's, so those people who are huddled together and they try to house them in the same pod. 
So they're like having a little salon in there talking about mm-hmm. their philosophy readings. They're it's coming, great, though. It's expanding it's, their minds yeah, totally. and taking them out of the out of what seems like an inevitability and mm-hmm. providing them with a possibility. What what a magical gift, it, you know? It, it it's it's be- I think it's beautiful. It, I think it's incredible, and I'm so thankful. And to know that that these inmates are because they're learning and they're excited and they're now seeing future for the mm-hmm. first time maybe ever mm-hmm. maybe um and that's exponentially moving throughout the the prison and exciting other this is what we hope inmates this is what we hope like a virus mm-hmm. but the best kind <laughs> it uh yeah because to get in the program you have to follow the rules you don't follow the rules you boot it out of the program so and it gives them something to get in the program in the first place. Mm-hmm. These are the, you know, as Adam and David both spoke about, they, you know, they tutored mm-hmm. people that mm-hmm. really wanted to. And mm-hmm. Adam said, in some cases, these are people that had never, that can't, could not read, mm-hmm. couldn't spell mm-hmm. their own name mm-hmm. and that they, they helped them. Yeah. It's it, incredible. It, one last. No, keep it. There are no last. Keep <laughs> okay. talking, brother. Um, it's all good. <laughs> but so the first class I taught. Uh, my comp one class, I wasn't sure how I was going to fill the time. So I bought a reader. Or I, I didn't buy the reader. Julie bought a, a set of readers for them. I don't know what that means. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, this I asked for a collection of short stories. Mm. as A reader as opposed to a rhetoric. So I had a rhetoric which teaches composition skills with some readings. And then I bought a separate, had them get a separate thing that was just a reader. Meaning an anthology. Yeah, precisely. Okay, got yeah, it. Sorry. No, um, it's okay. I got into composition terms there. Yeah, no, um, it's okay. Fine. So I, 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 the collection I have was 40 short stories. And I had them read Cathedral. Great one. Um, uh, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Joyce Carol Oates. But I also had them read Barn Burner, which is a William Faulkner story. And it's about a young boy whose father is an arsonist. And whenever he has a, a, a an, an altercation with someone, he, he responds with arson. And this young boy makes this decision to go tell. And it leads to the what we perceive as the death of his father. He doesn't see it. He just hears the gunshots. He's just running. And spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry, yeah, but I figure the story's been around for a long time. Uh, but the I was on the fence about about it. And when I spoke to the warden before I taught the class, he's like, Yeah, well, make sure you don't do anything that's too you know, violent. And I mean I'd already done where are you going, where have you been, which is kind of spooky violent. Um But that was that Barn Burner was probably the most emotional class because it's about a young boy who is clearly being pressured to follow into the footsteps of his father into a life of, of living outside the law and crime. and Which many of these folks... Exactly. And the victim mentality. It's the whole sins of the father thing. Absolutely. And uh, Adam, his father, his grandfather, mm-hmm. his uncle, all incarcerated. David. Yeah, David's father, mm-hmm. sure. And that was, a, that was an intense day. Um, there was a little dust in the room in people's eyes that day. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I made a non I made a nonverbal communication to indicate a tear. They were uh, crying. Yeah. In other words, um, I'm sure it touched very deeply. Yeah, and 
and I mean Faulkner's just a great writer. So yes, it, and I'm rambling and nerding no. on this, but like no. as the I've always been a short story Faulkner. I think he that was I wish he'd written more because he can put pack so much power into such a short great story. Writer. Oh, it's kind of a John up there. All of them. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah, I know you're a huge fan of books, and I am. And that thing of feeling like you're not alone in the world, which is what drew me to books when I was younger, of seeing like, oh, I'm not the only one who's thought this way. Or as uh, the teacher tells Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye, like to read books and see, you know, try different sizes. Of, I've got it. I'm not saying it correctly, but like we need to read books to sort of see where our brain fits in the world and stretch it some and see some ideas or you know. Yeah, books are. Books are the best friends, and yeah, they really are. Yeah. And some books are such great friends that you go back and visit them time and again, mm-hmm. you know? You say, I am not yours, you are not mine, mm-hmm. but hold my hand and mm-hmm. we will, you oh, know, walk through this world together. That's a beautiful way to say it. You know? That's, oh, I love books so much. Yeah. I love reading. I love, I love being a part of the writer's mind. Mm-hmm. So I love poetry so much mm-hmm. as well. Anyway, enough about me. Anyway, go on. Well, no, I mean, that's a beautiful sentiment. And there are some writers like that just, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, I teach a letter from Birmingham jail every Mm. semester. Mm -hmm. And that's one that I read every time. There are some things I teach that I've read so many times, I I don't need to reread them to go in and teach them. But just his ability to, speak so eloquently and come up with these beautiful metaphors and and it's just it's just amazing it's kind of like reading John Updike I'm not a huge fan of John Updike in, in the whole but like every page I'm like wow how did you think of that or what a cool way to express that I mean as someone who writes it's just so inspiring that someone can continually come up with a fresh way to express an idea mm. um, I mean that's but Martin Luther King like we are tied together in one inescapable garment of garment inescapable garment of destiny. Martin Luther King, he Junior dropped some mad truths. Absolutely. And some some were polarizing for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but man, what a voice. What a and when I mean voice I mean the literary sense in the literary sense. Absolutely. Um, wow. Tell me about your best day there in the prison. If oh you boy! Call one or one of them. Oh well, the I think my first, my best day every semester is the day that I give back grades. Mm. Um, it's never my favorite day because there, it, on my regular campus day to day classes, there's always a population that, without getting into too much detail, I think they still sort of have a high school mentality and they think there's sort of a Hail Mary situation at the end. Like, I don't really have to do all this work or he didn't really mean it when I said, but giving back those papers. I mean, in prison, in prison, they took it, they took it seriously. And the number of, suddenly the bar is set almost differently. And I have to remember, like I have to grade them according to the same standard. I can't curve this down because so many worked so hard. Uh, so that was a great day out there. At um, at Turney, it was a different. This was a, this good indication of the difference. They got their first grades and they complained about them. 
they thought that I had graded too harshly. Hmm. And, uh, and I think that's part of the institutionalization of it. You've been in prison so long, you've learned certain ways of... So I've just, I'm like, no, this is, I'm not changing anybody's grade. This is where we're at. If you want a better grade, you're going to have to... And Rise they, to the occasion. And then they took it seriously. And I mean, there was some amazing writing came out of that class. Um, in a communications class, they, they got their test grades and they did very, very well, overwhelmingly. And, and I told them, I said, this is the exact same test I give my students on the main campus. And they were, did we do better? I'm like, well, and I gave them the, the math of it, and they were just so incredibly proud that they had done, That's like, beautiful. Their, their average was five points higher than the average of a, you know, a standard, on the or, outside. not standard no, class there. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so those moments of seeing the satisfaction in their faces when they realized, well, I worked and it paid off. And I think that's, again, something that a lot of people... It's a huge lesson. Yeah. It's a beautiful and important mm-hmm. lesson in life. You work hard. And it pays off. Yeah. It, it may not pay off exactly the way you think it's going to. That's right. another one of life's little lessons. Right. You, you, as my father used to always say, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> yeah. So you never, you never know really the direction it's going to go. Mm-hmm. But if you show up... Uh, one thing I always emphasize to my students, and I used to, even when I was a guitar teacher, I'd say the same thing. Learning is a very honest ende- endeavor. It's probably the most honest endeavor. If you want to see a cause and effect relationship, put work hard and you will see the results. Yeah. And I can't guarantee you're going to be a rock star, but I can guarantee if you sit down and you really practice, not just fight around with the TV on with your guitar. If you really practice it, you're writing, your guitar playing, your songwriting, it it pays off. Yeah. And it doesn't guarantee, it is its own reward. It doesn't guarantee money or fame or success. But if that's your goal, and I know a lot of people who make a lot of money who don't necessarily, aren't the brightest people. I don't, I don't know that making a lot of money necessarily requires, I think it requires a difference. Tenacity. It requires tenacity. I think. It, it, it well, absolutely, anything And does. sometimes, you know, being born tenacity. into it. As well. How's the coffee? It's delicious. Thank you so much. Do you want a little more? I think I'm good. I think I'm, I'm feeling... I haven't had a whole, whole lot of caffeine. See, I'm already... Talking a little bit. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I'm hopping you up. Crazy I just, coffee pusher. I could talk about this forever. I just think it's it's such a fascinating subject. I think it's, it's wonderful that you are a part of this. And, I mean, the fact... I you know, secretly want everyone on the planet to read books. So, not secretly, I say it all the time. It's not a secret. So, it's exciting to know that you've opened up the world to these Mm -hmm. people to, um, to fall in love with Mm -hmm. words and, and they express themselves as well, right? They've Mm -hmm. written papers and Mm -hmm. I bet you some of those papers are, have been pretty eye-opening. Anything stand out there? Um, Personal essays, right? That's yeah, the, 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 in Comp 1, the first couple essays they write, I have them write from first person uh, just to get familiar with the modes of writing and you know focus on things like paragraphing because I don't know where students are going to be. So rather than try to bring in research at the beginning, I make sure that we just focus. So I really don't want to reveal anything, you know, tell stories out of, but yes. Out of school. Um, literally, in this yeah. case. Um, yeah, some of those uh, essays... Cause and effect opened a floodgate for people. Explain what cause and effect. 
Uh, when the, with cause and effect, the students are given an option of talking about the causes to an event in their life or the effects of an event in their life. Um, and they can make wow. a causal chain if they want, but obviously... I bet that was heavy. I mean, here are some people who have, who have had some time to think about they causes were, and effects. Sure. And it's cause and effect is a dominating way of thinking in the Western world. So, I mean, it's, it's a skill that... The better you are at it, on really, the more likely you are to be successful. That would be an incredible book to read. Have you ever talked to any of them about putting together an anthology of you within know, the system? You know, that's an interesting idea. I would read that. Um, in fact, I, there was a book that I read that um, was an anthology of people on death row. I'm huh. the name of the book right now. Is, um, I have it. It's, it's on my shelf. You mentioned this before. It's, yeah. a, it's incredible to read it. And it, again, it's just it's first person. From yeah. those sitting on death row about what they'd done, that and it, I, it yeah. caused an effect. Yeah. Um, so that particular assignment was one where a lot of people were asking, like, "Can we write more?" Then, because mm-hmm. it was to be a like three and a half to four page essay, and they're like, "Do, do we lose points if we go over?" And I was like, "Well, as long <laughs> as you're writing a, a solid, tight, yeah. well-edited essay, no. I mean, if you're rambling, yeah." And That'd I was be cathartic. Getting, it, it was like getting 10, 12 page essays and just stories of, I mean, this is how I know how some of them ended up in prison. Yeah. Um, that gives me the shivers. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was eye opening in that way. The minimum security, uh, prisoners were much more, much more open about what got them there. Um, the medium, the attorney students were not so much willing to talk about it. And it's probably because most of them had done something worse. You know, it's no matter... Then what was done to them, you mean? Wh- or well, worse I mean, than the other students. A, a crime that yeah, was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Um, you, you know, that... And that there's a respect thing that happens there. And, you know, our impression management as from a communications perspective. And you probably don't want to talk about what you did to your teacher in that situation when it's because a lot I mean some of these guys did some bad things uh, bad things yeah and that's that's all there is to it but anyway um, you had it was a, that's, that was such a great question I just want to point that out like what's your best day and it, it made me think about a couple other moments that were uh, I think one of the best things do you remember we were talking we were sitting and talking with David Nunn and he said, uh, Mr. Pease. And I said, oh, you can call me Harlan. And he said, no, you're Mr. Pease. That's respect. And uh, I love him. He's so great. I mean, but that's so much validation for all the decisions I made. Like, yeah. I was, no, this is how I'm going to run the classroom. No, this is the way I'm going to grade. Because I really do feel, believe, firmly believe that people will rise or, or sink to the expectations you establish for them. And one of the best things I ever read it came from a personal trainer or heard uh he said most people set their ceiling where they ought to set their floor and it it's so true and this is a guy who like trains I love people for an, that. you know that's fantastic he he trains people for iron to do the iron man competition and triathlons and he said you know just so many people they they set their ceiling where they ought to set their floor and uh i mean i'm guilty of it and there are days when i don't work myself as hard as i should or but it's always good to kind of keep that in the back of your mind that we're hmm. capable of so much more than we think we are on a daily basis. 
I love that so much. I'm so glad you're on the planet. (laughs) Thank you. And likewise, thank you. It makes me very happy. Well, let's shift a little bit. Okay. Let's talk about musicians on call. Okay. So describe what that is. Musicians on call is an organization that they have arrangements with hospitals to allow volunteers to come in and play music in for patients in their rooms, their hospital rooms. Terminal or anyone? It, we there are different uh, different programs. When I started, and I've been with them close to since the beginning. That's a southern way to say that. Close to since the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you will be assimilated. <laughs> I might could, <laughs> um, but uh, some sweet tea. Yeah, <laughs> if you want. I don't. I don't know. Someone said to me once, "Oh, sweet tea." She said, "I like it so sweet, it makes my teeth itch." And I was like, "I think I'm just going to pass." That's on a that. great way to. That's a beautiful <laughs> turn of phrase. I love so that. Teeth I itch. actually don't enjoy sweet tea. I, I don't either. Gross. I don't love it. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so when I started, we were playing a couple programs at Vanderbilt, and. Uh, Bordeaux, which is a long-term care. Um, so I played a lot at Bordeaux. And uh, a lot of those patients um, were very heartbreaking. Not all of them had family. Mm. Um, it, it was a, you know, to talk about eye-opening experiences. I mean, wow. And some people who just can't take care of themselves who are young. Uh, there was a diabetic patient in there who had lost both of his legs Um Anyway, so launched because this should be a very positive thing, and I'm and I'm making it sound heavy, and sometimes it is, but in a good way. So you have a guide, and the guide will go into the room and say, uh, "You know, I'm such such from musicians on call, and we have a volunteer musician here. Would you like to hear a song?" And if they say yes, I'll come on in and play a song. And you know, sometimes it turns into a conversation with the patient, especially if they're lonely. You know, we kind of have to watch our time because we need to make sure we get to every room. Um, that is something to think about, that some of these people in hospital, they don't have any family at all. They don't. And they're all ages, right? They're not just, not just old oh, people. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, well, at Bordeaux in particular, uh, at Vanderbilt, we, we might do like a, a step up or step down from heart surgery. Mm. So some people who are waiting for a transplant or waiting for surgery. Other times, you know, I'm on a floor where it's people who are recovering. They're always more relaxed and you know um and then we added programs at um Stalworth rehabilitation i say we they did they did all this work i want to make sure i give credit where credit is due <laughs> to uh oh, i'm calling them young girls because i'm dating myself but dana brim and katie epley they're both married now um but they worked they were like they were the whole thing when I started. It was the, the two of them. Musicians on call. They yeah. started it. They didn't start it. Oh, okay. But they started it here in Nashville. Oh, got it. Uh huh. And uh, now, I mean, it's grown so much, and they both have jobs with a lot more responsibility, and there's a staff to take care of so and much. And you got a big logistic. award from them last year. I did. Or was it two, two years, years ago? ago. Yeah. Two years ago. Oh, time flies. And what was that award, sir? Uh, that was the uh, Volunteer Musician of the Year Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Doesn't surprise me one bit. At that time, I had done, uh, I think, a hundred bedside programs. That's what they call it. That's in a of, year. No, that's over the course of. Okay. Like, I do it like once, twice a month, but okay. I had a total of a hundred. Uh-huh. So it's not a hundred playing for a hundred patients. It's volunteering a hundred for a hundred shifts, okay. for lack of a better term. Sure. 
And I'd also done some shift. You might have a bunch. Yeah. Okay. I got an average night. I mean, depending. See, sometimes I play at a live hospice, and the hospice, you might play for eight people because people are less likely to want music. Um, patients are in different states, and the families and people are actively dying. So, yeah. that's a different thing. And then I'll play like Sarah Cannon, which is a cancer center. You might play for a lot more people there because they want, you know. So it varies, but uh, to anyway, uh, I'm rambling a little bit no, on that. Ramble on. So the award night, um, I had also done a thing called Project Playback, and we went to Bordeaux. It was myself and a girl named Christina Morris. She got married. I think her married name is Irwin now. She moved, um, but she was a volunteer for musicians. On she was an intern, I believe at that time and uh so we went in and we just got a bunch of patients that were interested and we had them tell stories and we wrote songs oh neat so we wrote a couple songs with them and uh you just collected made sure everybody had a voice or a line and so forth in the song and i went home and uh made up some backing tracks on trusty old garage band then i brought my remote recording set up and we got all the patients to to sing and I played guitar, and uh, <laughs> Dana's husband, Adam, uh, played a, a cajon. Mm-hmm. And I took that home and just kind of doctored it up and added a little bit of sugar on it. And uh, did a couple songs, and we pressed a CD. So I had done that project, which was also a reason I was, I was given that award. And uh, it was a, that was a pretty... Uh, I, we did a CD release with them, and... Uh, I mean, some of these patients are perfectly healthy, but they're in, they're disabled in some way, and other people are, have some mental things going on. So it was quite a collection of people, and we had them up there, and I'm playing the guitar and leading them through singing it, and uh, a bunch of other patients came out. They had it in a common room, and there was an audience, and it was just one of those moments where you're like, I don't know what I did in my life to end up here, but... It must have been something right. You, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it was, and I was getting so much more out of it than they were, but not all of them. And there was one guy there and I can't remember his name. Actually, I do remember his name. I'm just not going to share it, but he's in a, he's confined to a wheelchair and he has something going on with his speech. He can't speak clearly. Um, he had some sort of head injury when he was younger and, uh, he loved Vince Gill he played the keyboard and it was pretty erratic, but we managed to get, I managed to get some of that recorded and where it really synced well, mix it up in the mix so you could hear his playing. Mm. Um, I, I mean, the day of the CD release, he had dressed up, he had cowboy boots on and a bolo tie. And I mean, it was just Wonderful. magical. Yeah. I kind of forgotten about that. I'm glad you asked that question because it was it was one of those experiences where I worked so many hours doing it that at the end I was so burnt. I couldn't really, I was just like, finally it's over, you know, because I have a day job I'm trying to do my own life. And sure. this was all consuming for about three weeks. Yeah. But you certainly live a life of service. You really well, do. And it's, it's that's sweet of you to say. It's beautiful. It really is. Um, you're, you're magical. Well, you know, a long time ago, I, I, uh, when I was 19, 
I started out as an electrical engineering major, and I was always pretty good with math and science, or you know, better than good, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went into that. I'd, I'd received a, an academic scholarship because of my SAT scores and uh, four years tuition paid. Um, nice. Yeah. Uh, I really wasn't ready, and I didn't know what I wanted out of life at that point. And despite the fact that I was a voracious reader, um, particularly like, you know, fifth through eighth grade, I mean, the amount I read is just, I, it's still like mind-boggling that uh, we moved to a town in fifth grade, when I was in fifth grade, and uh, I had access to a library for the first time, where I'd lived before, it was pretty remote. Um, and not that there wasn't a library close by, but it just was, you know, my parents were busy, it just wasn't. And my my parents provided us with books and a set of encyclopedias, but I didn't have. So when I, suddenly I had I could walk to a library, and you remember the old library cards where they'd stamp the date, you know, like within like six months I'd filled like back and forth it's both passport sides. Passport to the mind. Yeah, <laughs> that's a yeah, that's a great. <laughs> so uh, uh, anyway, uh, my my point being, I got rambling there a little bit is. Uh, when I was about 19, I was having a crisis. I didn't know what I wanted out of life. I'd signed up for engineering when I got the scholarship because I didn't I didn't know what else. I didn't really want anything. I was just kind of happy at that point in my life in a weird way. I was working at a marina. I was just kind of becoming and coming into my own. I was a bit of a late bloomer. But I had the scholarship. Obviously, you're not going to turn down a scholarship. And I had to declare a major. And one of the stipulations was I couldn't change the major. So I signed up for electrical engineering, figuring the math, science, and my dad works with electronics. So um, in in tribute to him, uh, he's a huge influence on my life. Uh, I signed up for engineering, and it was a bad fit. Hmm. Uh, And I I had an A average through my first year, but my heart wasn't in it. And I was working in a lab with um, part of my scholarship was I had a work job, a a Mm -hmm. work-study type job, and... I was working in a lab with a bunch of uh, masters and PhD students, and we were working on a con. We had a, something for the government, um, and I just knew I didn't have the passion. And we'd get together after work and hang out, and, and these guys would get drinking and talk about their research, and I was kind of like, "You guys ever been on a date? Where are the women? <laughs> you know what I mean?" <laughs> so. <laughs> So I was kind of felt like, and there were some smart people in that group. I mean, one guy, I, I won't mention his name because he, speaking of people who have committed some, some crimes, uh, he ended up committing, he's just too smart for his own good. But this guy was probably the most brilliant person I've ever encountered in my life. I mean, wow. like IQ up in the 170 range. And he'd sit there and talk to me and I'd be like, Jeff, you know, you lost me after like 30 seconds. Can we back this up? And he just so wanted to share all that stuff that was going on in that big old brain of his. And I mean, I was like... What kind of crime did he commit without... Drugs. Oh, drugs. Okay. Manufacturing. Oh. Uh, he did a little Walter White action. A little while, Walter White. Got he was it. Walter White before Walter White's time. Yes. Um, he was OG Walter White. <laughs> He's OG Walter White. If I ever see him, I'm going to tell him that. <laughs> it's been years. I mean, I know where, right where he, he's still... Is he incarcerated? No, no. No, he's still there. Okay. He, uh, I'll just give this one little detail. Uh, the judge said, basically said, you are too smart. 
to be in prison, and he gave him an option of moving somewhere and being confined to that area for 10 years. And obviously this person took that deal. Yeah. And it was an educational center, and he's gone on and published a, some papers and done some... Fascinating. Uh, the work we were doing did not take off like they thought it was going to, which is... The engineering work? Yeah. They, for the government? It, Which is unfortunate, because if it had taken off, I mean... This person would be like a Bill Gates character, and I mean, mm. one of those guys. And he's just again, it's really, doorways, right? Yeah, it's the doorways. Well, not that he's lived a bad life. I mean, he's been in research and education his whole life. It's not like he's had to go mm-hmm. bust rocks or something, right? Uh, what a character! Now, though. here's a question. Yeah. So, do you think uh, that had he? I'm assuming he's white. I'm just going to mm-hmm. keep assuming this. Uh, mm-hmm. If he had not been white and was busted for drugs and was hyper-intelligent, do you think that they would have given him that same option? I, I, there's no way to tell, no of way. course. It, but, I mean... It, it always makes me wonder. I mean, you know... He committed his crime in Texas. Oh, really? So, Yikes. based on my perception of Texas, and I haven't been in a while, to be perfectly honest, but uh, I'm thinking he'll probably know would be the answer. Yeah. I mean, we're, plus we're going back... 20 plus years sure. the world has changed um, yeah. I mean I, he's a brilliant brilliant person though um, it's fascinating and, I don't and mean to always a, bring race into no, it but I think it is an important topic especially now more than ever but and this person had a ton of people go to bat for him who I mean yeah a ton of professors reached out and were like wrote letters saying this guy is super smart yeah. and bored out of his mind and yeah, yeah. it's it's uh Hey man, I I've, I've had a misspent you too yeah. smart for my own good and got into lots of fun it. little troubles. Yep. Most it, of which were never. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, off of moving, me. Back, yeah, to yeah. <laughs> back, so, back to you. So back to you. So to finish that story up. So about the age of nineteen, I realized I didn't have a passion for electrical engineering. I loved math, and I reasonably was reasonably drawn to science. And I thought about studying a pure science or, or becoming a mathematician. Hmm. But at that time, I remember one afternoon, I was just kind of, I was down. I was depressed, for sure. I don't, couldn't have identified it as that at that age. But I just realized that it was important to me to do something with my life that was I felt was going to be positive. I was such an overthinker. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, we had this job, and we're doing something for the, essentially for the military. And I had a little hang-up about it, even at that age. Like, I'm—I mean, it was designed to save lives, but you save lives in machines that are designed to kill. Yeah, it reminds me of. Have you ever seen the movie Real Genius? No, that's fantastic with Val Kilmer. If you, if y'all have not seen this movie, it is fantastic. But you just made me think of that because that's. I'll add it. To I don't want to. I'm not going to spoil or alert okay. this movie. It is. It is very funny, and very well done, and what you just said reminded me of it. But I'm going to anyway. add it to my cue. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that point came, and uh, I just realized that I, through my ability to think it through at that age, with the education I had and so forth, I saw that going into education, and going into music, were two things that. I didn't think you could ever trace back to being harmful to people. Mm. Even death metal or gangster rap or whatever, I still I don't think those things are harmful. Um, as I've gotten older, I've, I've moderated that viewpoint to some extent. It, with education, too. I can see how in some cases education can be harmful. But 
anything that becomes systematized in any way <laughs> is 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 subject to abuse. Becomes a slippery slope. Yeah. Sure. So back to the musicians on call really quick. Yeah. Um, so you're walking through, you're, you're, you're interacting with patients, and you're mm-hmm. playing songs. Is it your own songs or cover songs? I play covers okay. unless someone specifically asks for originals, which occasionally happens. We're here in Nashville. So I saw the application for musicians mm-hmm. on call because mm-hmm. I was interested in doing it. And one of the questions it said on the, on the application, uh, it said, do you feel like you might cry during one of these sessions with the patients? <laughs> I thought, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I'm out of the race there. Yeah. I mean, how do you keep it together? You don't always. Yeah. Especially um, with children. I mean, I imagine you see children as well. And... I, not so much because I don't do the children's hospital. Um, but it's part of it, isn't it? Uh, you, you can, vo- as, a, as a volunteer musician or guide, you can choose where okay. you want yeah, to go. That's what I so. Yeah. I would think I would enjoy the children's hospital, um, but now that I have so much more experience with it, but in the beginning I was like, no way. But one time, um, this was in the regular hospital, and there was a girl, I mean, I'm going to say she was 13, and she was all alone in her room, and her room was sort of isolated off the main hallway too, so she wasn't even, like if her door was open, she wasn't even seeing nurses and doctors go by. Um, So I went in there, and... Uh, I said, uh, you know, well, what would you like to hear? And she's like, oh, anything. And I said, would you like to hear something up-tempo or, or, or slower? And she said up-tempo. And she had these beautiful brown eyes. So I sang Brown-Eyed Girl. And I got like halfway through a verse, and she just burst into tears. And obviously it wasn't the song. It was just the situation and her own fear. And that was just one of those moments where you, you're, I don't know how you'd know, tear up in that situation because... I don't know how to. She was just meant. I mean, I'm scared, and I'm a, I'm an adult, and I still don't want to go into the hospital and have a, a routine procedure. So whatever. Uh, so there are moments where you're going to have very emotional times. How did you comfort her? What did you do? At this, at that point, I was relatively new to the the program. I mean, that might have been one of my first solo times because you the first times you go through, you have the guide yourself, and then there's a representative who's there to sort of facilitate and train. So this might have been one of the first times I went by myself. And uh, I don't think I did a very good job of comforting her at all. Uh, or or it's strict, you can't touch the patients. So you're not supposed to bring up... We're really supposed to keep a pretty solid boundary yeah, because that could sense. get weird. And, Absolutely. So I, I think I just said, I'm so sorry or something like that and just kind of followed the guides lead the guides are actually trained much more than the musicians are yeah uh, our, I think the guides have a more difficult job they go through a lot more training um, they try to make it for the musicians mostly that we just going to play a song and then go move on so we don't have a lot of training in that aspect um, yeah wow uh, it's quite a life you live <laughs> it's um, I've actually thought about training as a guide um because there is a backlog of musicians. There are plenty of volunteer musicians. There aren't as many volunteer huh. guides. I, that's my understanding last time I heard that. Like mm-hmm. they had a year. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, here in Nashville, we got a lot of plenty. musicians here, sure. Uh, but there are moments when you go in and uh, 
it's never routine. Um, it's never been a situation where, you know, we go out and we do writer's nights, or I used to be a full-time gigging musician, and nights just start to blend into, like, I know you said once, like, I have my three songs, I go out and do them, and they kind of become almost like press play yeah. a little bit. And, and I don't that's, like to do that. I don't either. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I used to play full-time five, six nights a week, and you, it's, it's easy to just sort of... Yeah. But I can't think of a single time when I've done a... Uh, volunteered for musicians on call where it's like, oh, here, I'm playing this song again. Because it it totally takes you out of your head. Mm. In a, That's not entirely true. It, because it puts you in a head in your head in a different way, but it it becomes so much less about you mm. or me as a situation. The royal you. Yeah, the royal you. <laughs> it becomes about that patient and there's so much more going on there than just the music. And one of the things that's a lot of times patients, and I don't know if this is a generational thing because they're older, but they look like serious when you're playing, almost in a way that like we have become on a, like if we were playing a writer's night and someone had that look, you'd think that wow, they're hating this song. And then when they're done, when you're done with the song, I mean, they'll be like, you just made my day. It's like they just go into this kind of very concentrated thing and it could be medication. It could be they're coming from a generation where music was valued more than it is today. Sure. Not to open that can no, of worms. Not, yeah. uh, it's a whole other podcast. <laughs> for sure. But uh, it's a wonderful organization. I, um, well, I'll um, put links to everything on the Yeah, please and do. And do you have a website, Harlan? I don't at the moment. Okay. Facebook. Um, I do have Facebook. It's uh, pretty, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll good. put links and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, you're fantastic well thank you so much you are too Harlan Peace you are a light in in the world well I I try to do my little bit thank you for all of your service thank you for and you you too thank you for doing what you do oh well hey speaking of service (laughs) hey human I mean you're getting it out there and uh, so thank you thanks for being on the show it was my pleasure thanks for having me absolutely bye everybody bye bye